Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of emotional abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. When Carol returned home to Northampton on a break from college, she found her traditional conservative Christian family enthralled with a new pastor at Bugbrook Baptist Chapel. To help her get up to speed, her brother John invited her to the Saturday night meeting held in the new pastor's house. She tagged along, curious, but sat in the back of the room, hoping to blend in. When the meeting started, instead of singing hymns, modern music played. Carol was completely taken aback when people started lifting their arms and swaying. The music picked up and the swaying turned into dancing. Then laughter sprang up and bubbled across the room. Despite trying to go unnoticed, Carol stood out like a sore thumb as those around her were swept up in the mounting hysteria. Her shoulders tensed and skin prickled with confusion and discomfort. Then a voice broke through the noise. Let's pray for our sister, Carol. It was Noel Stanton, the new pastor and instigator of this dramatic change. At his command, Carol felt all the eyes in the room turn to her. The other women surrounded her and called out to Jesus to bless her before laying their hands on her in healing. The experience overwhelmed Carol and she burst into tears. She wanted to join them in their love and joy. She would do anything to be one of them. As she called out for forgiveness, the others echoed her cries. At the front of the room, Noel smiled. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll focus on Noel Stanton and the charismatic movement that inspired his rise at Bugbrook Baptist in the UK. We'll see how Noel co-opted the spiritual-seeking counterculture of the 1960s to start his Jesus Army. Next week, we'll examine how the Jesus Army expanded into London. But after the decades of abuses committed in the name of God, Noel Stanton was brought to justice. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Add a berry blast off for your day with the new Berry Pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. With the new Berry Way to Pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with Berry Pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. 
They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The line between religion and cult can become blurry in extreme situations. Religions and cults ask for the absolute faith of their congregations and come with an element of tribalism. Both create a distinction between believers and non-believers. It's a very human desire to want to belong to something larger than ourselves. But that impulse is also easily corrupted and hijacked by power-hungry individuals like Noel Stanton. The festively named Noel was born on Christmas Day, 1926, near Bedford, a rural town north of London. Noel grew up on his parents' farm in Bedfordshire. While living in the English countryside sounds idyllic, day-to-day life on a farm was hard work. Early mornings and physically taxing chores were part and parcel and likely war on Noel. Which might be why, at age 16, he left school and farm work behind, taking a job in town as a bank clerk. However, that only lasted two years. During World War II, the British government conscripted him into the Royal Navy. The finer details of Noel's military services have been lost to time, but we know that he didn't see direct combat. He was assigned to the clerical division. One day during his service, Noel came across a group of street preachers. He watched as they addressed uninterested passers-by. A moment later, one of the gentlemen in the group approached Noel with a question. Where do you expect to spend eternity? The realization struck Noel that he'd gone to war without ever considering that question. For the first time, he considered the existence of his soul and what life meant beyond survival. That simple question set Noel on a new course in life. From that moment, he privately considered himself a Christian. While spiritually, Noel's life had changed, after the war, he returned to working on his parents' farm. While this provided some stability in his life, like many young people at the time, Noel seemed lost. In the Navy, he'd woken up each morning knowing exactly what was expected of him, but after returning home, he had no clear path. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Leaving military service and re-entering civilian life can be a tricky transition. A 2016 study found personnel leaving the UK armed forces are essentially leaving one culture for another. The rules of military environments differ from civilian ones in significant ways that service people aren't always prepared for. Today, there are programs in place to help veterans with this difficult transition, but in 1945, the support system was far from adequate, leaving thousands of young men like Noel on their own. Noel's transition was likely far from seamless, as he looked for a new routine and a renewed sense of purpose. Searching for a new sense of belonging, Noel returned to the question posed to him by the street preachers. He'd made it through the war alive, and now felt compelled to learn more about what it meant to be a Christian. So Noel left home and moved in with a Pentecostal family he knew. There he dove headfirst into learning the Word of God. 
While some Christians feel they're part of the modern church, this particular family of Pentecostals strove to return to an early, pure form of Christianity. As such, they tried to leave lives in line with those of the early Christians and rejected much of the modern world. Within this setting, Noel developed the foundations of his faith. And while living with and learning from this family, Noel was finally baptized. For Noel, this moment meant salvation and eternal life. Yet he still felt called to go deeper. Wanting to learn all he could, Noel attended All Nations Bible College in London. To support himself, he took a job at an accounting firm. Despite leaving school at such a young age, Noel seemed to do fine working with facts and figures. Even so, life in the secular world didn't hold much for Noel. It was only at college that he felt like he was pursuing his true calling. And the more Noel learned about Christianity, the more dedicated he became. After years of hard study, Noel received a certificate from Bible College and set his sights on the next chapter of his Christian journey, missionary work. He took a part-time job as a deputation secretary with the West Amazon Mission Society in London. He pictured himself in the Amazonian jungles, reaching people with the good word and securing their souls for Christ. That was until 1957, when a Baptist church in the tiny village of Bugbrook, 70 miles north of London, found itself in desperate need of a pastor. Bugbrook Baptist had been without a full-time preacher for six years, and the congregation was on the verge of dissolving. As secretary for the mission, Noel was one of many rotating speakers invited to the church in its time between pastors. The congregation took a liking to him almost immediately. At 31, Noel was relatively young compared to the congregation and other preachers. Coming to Bugbrook opened Noel's eyes to the need for strong Christian leaders right in his backyard. Missionary work in far-off places would be more exciting, but there are souls to be won right here in England, too. In March 1957, the congregation asked Noel to stay on, and the Association of Baptist Churches, called the Baptist Union, accepted him into the pastorate. Immediately after, Noel got to work. Still thinking like a missionary, he focused on growing the congregation. For the good of the people, but also for the good of the coffers. More members meant more tithes, and more tithes meant more funding for the church. And they needed it. Among other things, the aging chapel was in disrepair. To remedy the situation, Noel organized Bible weeks and missionary weekends, pushing congregants to recruit their neighbors to Christ. They saw some success initially. If nothing else, people were curious about the young, new pastor. Under Noel's direction, Bugbrook became known as an evangelical center in the Northampton area. They were doing a lot, running regular outreach programs in the community. However, they hit a wall with retention. It seemed easy to get people excited initially, but maintaining their interest and commitment was challenging. The years passed by quickly as Noel feverishly worked to grow his ministry. But after 10 long years, Noel felt frustrated by the plateau in the numbers. By 1967, he expressed doubts about the congregation's dedication to the mission. He even wondered aloud whether he was the right leader for Bugbrook. But it was around this time that Noel experienced a revolution. It was a time of upheaval, not just at Bugbrook Baptist, but in Christianity as a whole. Some of Noel's friends from his early Pentecostal days told him about the fervent dedication being brought out of people by something called the Charismatic Movement. The Charismatics emphasized the importance of experiencing, even being overpowered by the Holy Spirit. 
Faith wasn't something to be understood with your brain, but rather felt with your body and soul. They believed those baptized in the Spirit would receive its gifts, including prophecy, the ability to speak in tongues, and divine healing. Noel knew this unorthodox approach would likely be rejected by many of the congregation who, as traditional Baptists, believed they should stay composed and proper in church. But Noel saw the charismatic movement as an opportunity to get the willing hooked on Jesus and committed to the cause. In the summer of 1968, Noel started a Saturday night prayer group in his home on the church estate. The meetings were for those who felt God might be calling to them to make a deeper commitment. Noel led them through the Book of Acts, which recounts the history of the Apostles and the early Christian church. Noel understood that true revivals were meant to bubble up from the congregation organically. So, rather than dictate a move toward charismaticism, he played the part of a skeptical believer. To the others, he appeared unconvinced of this movement. But Noel gave off the impression that he followed where God seemed to be leading. And as he followed God, this small group followed him. Curious to see a revival for themselves, some of the young people from Bugbrook went to one nearby. There, people prophesied all around them and spoke in tongues. It seemed completely unique, and they came back excited and raving. But it didn't compare to what Noel experienced shortly after in December of 1969. He prayed to God for confirmation that he was meant to lead the people of Bugbrook along the path of the Charismatics. Then suddenly, an intense feeling overwhelmed Noel, and he thought he was about to drop dead. Emotions rolled through his body, cresting and falling like ocean waves. Before he knew it, hours had gone by. He'd been speaking in tongues and worshiping God the entire time. After a year of building enthusiasm among his small group, Noel felt ready to escalate his devotion. Coming up, Flower Power reaches the UK and creates an opportunity for growth in Bugbrook. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1970, 44-year-old Noel Stanton had planted the seeds of charismatic revival in the congregation of Bugbrook Baptist, turning the small village church into an evangelical powerhouse. After Noel announced his baptism of the Spirit, other members of the church reported having holy encounters. 
the Saturday night meeting started to feel like an entirely separate church. Noel and the others who'd received the Spirit gathered to experience the gifts together. The scene appeared very different from the usual Sunday services, where even clapping along to music was seen as undignified. But on Saturdays, spontaneous singing and dancing filled the room. Emotions amongst the congregants flowed freely and unchecked. Eventually, miraculous things started to happen. Folks routinely spoke in tongues. Members even claimed that they were being given the wisdom of prophecy and made proclamations. During one meeting, a young man whipped off his glasses, declaring his vision was perfect without them. While it might have felt miraculous to the group, these dramatic changes were likely the result of in-group thinking. The effects of peer pressure have been well studied, starting as early as the 1950s. In a 2005 study, psychiatrist and neuroscientist Gregory Burns used MRI technology to visualize the impact of social pressure on the brain. As expected, those who resisted the will of the group experienced emotional discomfort, and the more central the relationship or group of relationships is to a person's identity, the higher the pressure to conform. More interestingly, the imaging showed marked activity in the part of the brain related to spatial perception. Dr. Burns interpreted this to mean the need to fit in with a group can cause people to change their perceptions of reality. With Noel's conversion to charismatic worship, the dominoes fell quickly. Suddenly, everyone in Noel's special circle experienced the blessing of the Spirit. The rest of this congregation, however, didn't exactly welcome this turn toward revival. The resistance didn't bother Noel, though, as he deepened the bonds of the faithful Saturday night group. In July, Noel took them on a retreat to get to know each other better. When they returned to Bugbrook, they had started referring to each other as brothers and sisters. In their eyes, they were a family in Christ. But this family didn't appeal to most of the older, more traditional members of the congregation. They had no interest in jumping and shaking and babbling. That wasn't what worship meant to them. In the early 70s, many church members terminated their association with Bugbrook Baptist. But Noel saw this as the inevitable clearing of dead wood. Plus, he'd found a new source of converts. In the spring of 1971, so many young people showed up at Bugbrook that Noel created a dedicated Sunday afternoon meeting called Teens and Twenties Music and Testimony Time. Despite the growing popularity of the church, many considered Noel odd for a pastor. Though still in his early 40s, his hair was entirely gray and stood away from his head in curly wisps. He was a bit like Willy Wonka, only instead of chocolate, everything in his world was made of Jesus. The things he showed his followers did indeed defy explanation. Worship meetings were whirlwinds of intense emotion. Everyone felt free to express the Holy Spirit however they saw fit. Crying, laughing, dancing, falling on the ground, and speaking in tongues were all par for the course. During the summer, Noel held another retreat. There, he taught members about how early churches functioned without being sanctioned by official denominations. Noel reminded them that Jesus and his apostles didn't attend theological colleges. Churches, according to Noel, should be nothing more than brotherhoods. For Noel, church didn't just happen in the old chapel building back in Bugbrook. The Spirit would find them wherever they were together. This justified the growing separation between the Saturday group and the traditionalists. This anti-establishment attitude also blended in seamlessly with the growing countercultural rhetoric of the late 1960s and early 70s. 
Most felt church people and hippies were and always would be at odds, but Noel saw the hippies' scorn for worldly values and communal living as a counterpart to what he was trying to accomplish in his faith. Most hippies were spiritual seekers, after all, searching various cultures and practices for a path to enlightenment. Noel believed he could recruit them. To become more visible to surrounding villages, in August, the church put on its Jesus Lives Crusade. For 40 days, they caravaned through the villages in Northamptonshire, led by Noel in his Audi. A train of cars and minibuses followed a large, open-backed truck where young folks waved from hay bales. The colorful t-shirts, bell-bottoms, long hair, and guitar strumming certainly seemed to belong more to a hippie parade than one centered on Jesus. The long procession even ended with a music festival on the Bugbrook Village Green. It was a massive publicity stunt for the church. They were featured in local papers, and as word spread of the wild Jesus people in Bugbrook, more and more young people flocked to the tiny village. With the continued influx of youthful counterculture, the concept of communal living became a stronger theme in Noel's sermons. The hippies brought with them the idea that to create a new society, one must excise themselves from the old. Noel began pitching his followers his vision of paradise, a world where things were all church all the time. To match this rhetoric, Noel made sure meetings took place nightly. With this increase, devoted members were spending a lot more time commuting to and from their homes. But Noel wondered, what if they never had to leave? But some couldn't justify it financially. Noel felt the church should do everything it could to help new members get closer to the action. Using his old accounting experience, Noel set up a sharing fund and housing association through the church. Noel asked members to live as frugally as they could so they might donate the majority of their earnings to the church. Quoting Luke, Noel told them, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. With this increased emphasis on donations and keeping members close, Noel finally saw the type of growth he'd hoped for in membership and revenue. Using these new funds, Noel began buying homes in and around Bugbrook to provide low-cost housing for members. Under Noel's direction, those already living in the village opened their homes, taking in new members if they had the room. Seeing their success, Noel and church leadership set a new goal of raising 50,000 pounds for the housing association. Noel wanted these funds for three new types of community houses. The first two were called Jesus Family Homes and Jesus Welcome Homes. Noel envisioned the family homes being used for commune families, while the welcome homes would be used for evangelical outreach. But Noel's ultimate dream was for the third type of structure called the Jesus Central Home at Bugbrook that would act as the hub for everything. As these plans for communal living began in earnest, they raised questions of individualism. Noel preached that the first Christians were of one heart and mind, encouraging members to think of themselves as part of a singular organism, the body of Christ. Until this point, things in the church had been all about freedom and spiritual liberation. But if the church truly wanted to build a new society, Noel said God needed them to show more discipline. According to Noel, temptations were everywhere, starting with flirtation between members of the church. When the first community houses opened, Noel made men and women live separately. Initially, it was a matter of propriety. Unmarried men and women living together was an open invitation for all kinds of sin. But Noel saw another use for segregation. 
According to Knoll, it allowed members to embrace the personalities of the sexes, as God supposedly intended. Knoll encouraged women to find joy and fulfillment in serving their brothers, supporting them in their masculine call to leadership. As Knoll got further in these beliefs, his sermons began emphasizing biblical calls for modesty. Long skirts or dresses replaced jeans and other hippie fashions. Day by day, Knoll took away more agency from his female followers. By the late 70s, the fellowship had instituted a relating procedure. If a man was interested in a woman, he first approached the pastor Knoll had assigned her for permission to spend time together, which they called getting related. She had the option to say no, but sisters were often pressured to give in to a brother's wishes for the good of the church. However, even with this procedure, both men and women were discouraged from seeking out marriage. Noel highly regarded the spiritual gift of celibacy. Noel and the other leaders regularly held it up as the purest spiritual path. To Noel, a celibate was unfettered by earthly desires and was free to give their entire being to God. Not all new members were young singles, though. Many of the people who joined Bugbrook and populated the communal houses were families with young children. However, Noel encouraged these parents not to prize their nuclear family over being part of the larger family of God. As with everything else, children became shared too. All of this sharing facilitated absolute self-denial, which Noel preached was the way to reach holiness. Taking things even further, he decreed all personal interests had to go. To desire or take pleasure in anything but God was a sin. To keep them on a spiritually pure path, Noel instructed his congregation to reject all distractions, such as secular music and all other forms of entertainment, like television, movies, and books. All expressions of identity, like personal fashion sense and owning things, was forbidden. Therefore, all possessions, from clothes to cars, became communal. In 1974, Noel decided to acknowledge his group had outgrown the Baptist moniker and changed the church's name to the Jesus Fellowship. Following the change, membership increased along with the group's collective purse. With it, Noel bought Bugbrook Hall, a 19th century mansion that came with 13 acres of parkland and a small strip of woods. He renamed it New Creation Hall. Noel saw it as the hub he'd dreamed of. At this moment, Noel's vision finally came together. 30 members quickly moved onto the property and renovated the rundown structure to make it welcoming for even more of Noel's faithful. Within a few years, so many moved to the site that Noel installed portable units on the grounds for extra shelter. But to fully incorporate the church into members' lives, the fellowship needed to offer employment opportunities on site. Noel set up what he called kingdom businesses. These ventures were ostensibly owned by the church, but controlled through trustees, most likely Noel and other loyal elders. In the earliest days, members essentially worked for room and board, as all profit went back into growing the businesses. The housing association became a construction company in charge of maintaining and repairing the Jesus homes. There was also a garage on site to maintain the many minibuses and cars that now belonged to the fellowship. When the farm started to produce plentiful harvests, they opened a community food store. All of these businesses eventually provided services outside the church community as well. To streamline the combining of income from the new businesses with individual members' income, Noel opened a common bank account. He put Mike Ferrant, a fairly new member he'd become close to, in charge. 
On payday, Mike collected everyone's money. Once the house necessities like mortgage and utilities were covered, leftover funds were put into the fellowship's central trust. Members could always request money, as long as they brought back receipts to account for purchases. But with so many of their basic needs covered, that eventually fell away too. Members of the Jesus Fellowship were officially living, working, and worshiping together all day, every day, in the name of God. With more members pouring their capital into the communal coffers and the kingdom businesses finding success, Noel purchased more properties that quickly filled up. By now, the fellowship had nearly 500 members. Because of this growth, Noel and the Jesus Fellowship started facing regular accusations of being a cult, particularly the changes in female members' appearance worried many in the community, as did the harshness of Noel's decrees against individuality. Then, when the news broke of two suspicious deaths at New Creation Hall, alarm bells blared. Coming up, the public begins to wonder if Noel's control had deadly consequences. Now back to the story. By the late 1970s, Noel Stanton had been the head of the steadily growing Jesus Fellowship for two decades. He'd promised them a community where they could dedicate every aspect of their lives to worshiping God, and he'd delivered. However, members lived a highly controlled existence dictated by Noel. As the public started getting whiffs of cult from the group, news broke of the deaths of two young members from mysterious circumstances. In December of 1977, a young man went missing after leaving for a prayer walk. Other members reported seeing him leave without a coat, despite the winter chill. He was later found dead on the Fellowship's estate. A year later, the remains of another young man were found on train tracks near the farm. Both deaths sent shockwaves throughout Northamptonshire. For those in the Jesus Fellowship, their loss was a tragedy. But for those in the greater community, it was a worrying sign that things might be amiss. However, when law enforcement conducted their standard investigations, they found no signs of foul play. The coroner ruled the first death accidental, as that young man died of hypothermia. The second death was also believed to be an accident. Investigators believed that as the second young man waited for one train to pass, another one came upon him from the other direction in the dark. Though both deaths were found to be accidents, they only added to the growing whispers and rumors circling the fellowship. Despite the mounting opposition, the fellowship flourished. In addition to the original church estate and new creation hall, they now operated six communal living spaces, and Noel prepared to make some even larger investments. He spent 200,000 pounds on an old hotel a mile from New Creation Hall called Cornhill Manor, with 16 more rooms, a dining room that sat 50, and most importantly, a ballroom with a 200-person capacity. Noel planned to turn it into a residence as well as a conference center. Shortly after this acquisition, Noel had another vision. Noel said God sent him the image of a tent pulling up its stakes and stretching out to cover more ground. Noel then announced his intention to expand into nearby counties. Noel selected a group for outreach. He told them to meet new folks open to the message and set up new communes. About 20 miles from Bugbrook, Warwick and Coventry were both university towns, which meant a fresh audience of young students, many of whom were living away from home for the first time. 
1979, the Fellowship bought a property near an old pub in Warwick. They named it Harvest House. Fellowship members spent many nights at the pub, praying for the young inebriated souls and inviting them back to Harvest House. The next day, guests were treated to breakfast and more prayer, then invited to worship meetings. Students and pubgoers made excellent targets for the recruitment strategy. The 1960s and 70s brought many Christians into protests for social justice, and as such, their connection to religion became tied to its usefulness in creating a better secular society. However, by the late 70s, hopes for systemic change had fallen dramatically. According to psychologist Edward M. Levine, this disenchantment led to a damaged sense of self, leaving many vulnerable to authoritarian groups and leaders. In this environment, Noel and his recruiters found willing converts. According to Dr. Levine, quote, Belief and belonging are the two crucial factors responsible for cults' popularity among young people. But the church's move into these college towns didn't go unnoticed. Parents of university students created a panic over the cultish nature of the fellowship. Some reached out to the local media, claiming their children had been brainwashed. In an article in the Northampton Chronicle and Echo, one father even announced plans to create a parents' association to share information and resources. The fellowship's press officer, now well-versed in addressing these claims, told reporters that members were taught to put all commitments second to their commitment to God, but denied the allegations of indoctrination. They claimed members were simply busy and focused on their spiritual journeys. But worried parents weren't Noel's only threat. Late in 1982, a pastor from another church in the area began distributing damning cassette tapes. It contained supposed confessions of ex-members that described Noel's recruitment techniques and made claims of brainwashing against the fellowship. Noel sent the pastor a cease and desist letter, saying the tape was entirely false and full of libel. Noel spun these attacks to his followers as proof they were onto something. He wrote to his following, By dictionary definition, every church is a cult. Jesus, his disciple band, and the early Jerusalem church would, in modern Britain, be greeted by the shrill cries of the anti-cultists. We, too, must carry the reproach of the cross. But the fellowship continued to attract negative attention. The Baptist Union that had signed off on Noel's initial appointment grew increasingly concerned. Though it couldn't interfere with individual churches' autonomy, the association was meant to safeguard against abuses of power. After the Baptist Union launched investigations to probe further into the fellowship, the two sides cut ties. It's unclear whether Noel pulled the plug or if the union asked the fellowship to leave. Regardless, it seems the separation didn't affect the congregation, which now boasted nearly 600 members, large swaths of property, and growing businesses. They now owned a second-hand clothing store, a chain of health food stores, and still operated their building services company called Skano Services. Additionally, they opened Toaster Building Company with lumber they milled at New Creation Hall. Despite Knoll's clear business acumen, Skano Services and Toaster got the fellowship in more hot water. Local companies found it nearly impossible to compete with Knoll's businesses because they operated with practically no labor costs. It invited investigation. 
According to Knoll, every employee of the Kingdom businesses earned an average of £3,000 a year. This included everyone from directors and executives to janitors. Presumably, that money went directly into household purses and the central trust fund. So in reality, no one could say for sure what or if they were being paid. Just as these questions about Knoll's business practices started swirling, a former member named Peter Evely started an opposition group called the Prayer Force Fellowship. In 1985, he and a few other ex-Jesus people wrote and published a pamphlet full of damning revelations about life under Knoll. According to the pamphlet, the private companies paid members incredibly low wages, and Knoll classified the majority of work done as voluntary labor to avoid paying income taxes. Knoll might have preached against wealth, but he oversaw a vast empire. Evely stated that the fellowship's community and business holdings were valued at three to four million pounds. Far from the quirky uncle image Knoll had cultivated, the pamphlet framed Knoll as a man with unchecked control. According to Evely, Knoll regularly scorned other churches, denouncing all other forms of Christianity as worldly and compromised. Knoll's way provided the only path to heaven. However, while he referred to himself as Reverend Stanton, the pamphlet revealed that Knoll had never actually gained the necessary accreditations from the Baptist Union. Not only did Knoll call himself a reverend without the qualifications, but he also held himself up as a prophet. Though other members supposedly experienced the gift of prophecy during worship meetings, his followers took Knoll's connection to God much more seriously. Knoll told members not to trust their conscience because it had been shaped by the world. Instead, they were to surrender to the moral code of the community, enforced by its leadership. According to the pamphlet, Knoll had delegated nearly all pastoral duties to other elders, preferring to spend his time running the many businesses. He handed down the strict community disciplines, but often exempted himself. Members had to get a community approval to buy a pack of gum, but Knoll continuously spent huge sums without answering to anyone. With these damning accusations out in the public consciousness, Knoll readied an offensive to further his mission. By this time, the fellowship had followers and houses in every town between London and Birmingham, spanning over 100 miles of countryside. But the grassroots style evangelizing wasn't cutting it anymore. The punks of the 80s were less spiritually driven than the hippies. So, in the summer of 1985, he announced Operation Mark, named for the Apostle. The call went out for 500 volunteers, 30 years old and younger, men and women, who were ready to be not just Jesus' people, but Jesus' commandos. Armed with the weapons of the word and love of God, these commandos wore vests emblazoned with Rebel for Jesus in blood-red paint. Knoll's inspiration for the new initiative came from the militaristic images in the New Testament. The phrase, Army of God, appeared over and over. Knoll had felt for years that they were under attack by those on the other side of the spiritual war. In the rougher, tougher times of the 80s, Knoll decided that it was time to embrace the idea of being a soldier and expand his outreach. For Knoll, the war was raging, and he wanted to mobilize his new Jesus army. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Noel Stanton and the Jesus Army. 
Noel's aggressive new recruitment measures scared London's homeless population. And the truth about the dark side of the community finally comes out. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Megan Hannum. With writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken. And research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 